Hello and welcome to part nine of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, we're headed back to the skies for our review of Miyazaki's 2004 film, Howl's Moving Castle. But first, how are you guys? I'm doing well, Scott. I, you know, we're, we're getting into deep into fall now, and the leaves are changing, and Thanksgiving's coming up, and it's a, it's a nice place to be. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cozied up in my comfy hoodie and my uh, sweatpants from my old job, and you know, the, these movies also, I don't know if they have, like, f- you know, fall energy, per like, all of them per se, but they do feel like good watches in this weather, if that makes sense. I feel like there's a slight distinction between just, like, you know, being good movies to watch during this time and actually having fall energy, but I'm, you know, because because we're, you know, we're, we're really just hitting the ground on these. I'm having a good time. How about you, Scott? There's a, there's a coziness and a warmth to so many of Miyazaki's movies. I hesitate to say all of them, but I definitely think Howl's Moving Castle is one that has some cozy energy to it. I mean, there's literal, like, you know, we're I was going to say literal by the fire coming from Castle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so no, I, I totally agree. And I definitely understand the vibe that you're, that you're talking about for sure. I'm I was also too. able to watch Kiki's in the theater. Uh, I know. Since the last I was time so we happy spoke, that which... that worked out for you. Yes, I was I was very happy. So that, that's another, you know, another reason I'm feeling good. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. I um I just yeah, I was happy that you, that worked out for you in terms of Kiki's getting to see it in a theater because they added more show times, I think when they were doing at Alamo Draft House, which was which was awesome. And yeah, the the vibes are great just ripping through Miyazaki films I got a friend at work who I've convinced to not do the full Miyazaki filmography at this point but he is doing Castle in the Sky Totoro Kiki Spirited Away Mononoke House Moving Castle Wind Rises so like almost like he's missing the first two and he's skipping Ponyo but like basically doing everything else and he's very locked in right now and I'm very excited for him so Look, we're spreading the gospel. We're spreading the good word of Hayao Miyazaki. And it's fall. It feels, Jay, to, I was also feel like, oh, the leaves are changing. I was noticing this very specifically on, on when I was walking to work today in, in Manhattan. And I was like, also, it's November 9th. <laughs> it's like super late, right? Like, it feels so late. Yeah, no, it started late this year for sure. But it's, it's nice that we're here. Scott, what's fall like in, in Charlotte? What is, what's going on? It doesn't feel any different from any other time of the year. Honestly, it feels like it has been the same temperature here every single day of this year. Like, that's honestly the way that it feels. It has been. Is that like good or bad? I can't. 70, that's how it is I mean, in, like, a, a lot of places, I guess. But Yeah, it, it's like, it's not an unpleasant temperature, obviously. Sure. But it's just like, I'm sick of it. Like, I would just like to walk outside and just, like, feel something different for once. And it does look like maybe it's going to be a little cooler next week. But it's just the fall, even even what fall weather we've had has come and gone very quickly. So, yeah, I guess yeah. I guess I'm clean. It sounds like you're looking for something to make you feel alive. And Scott, have you heard of drugs? I hear that's good for that. Um, that's for our other podcast, uh, sure. I think. The one that only the Patreon subscribers can yeah, listen to. Yeah, this is what you want to subscribe uh, on Patreon for. All right. Well, I cannot think of a better time to transition to our film. For today then which is howl's moving castle 
How's Moving Castle centers on a shy young milliner named Sophie, voiced by Emily Mortimer, who was working late at her hat shop one night when the dastardly old Witch of the Waste arrives and curses Sophie by turning her into a 90-year-old woman. Seeking to break the curse, Sophie, now voiced by Jean Simmons, leaves her home and her journey through the countryside leads her to first befriending a living scarecrow, which she calls Turniphead, and later to entering a levitating castle belonging to a young wizard named Howl, voiced by Christian Bale. In the castle, she meets Howl as well as his young apprentice Markle, voiced by Josh Hutcherson, and a fire demon named Calcifer, voiced by Billy Crystal, who makes a deal with Sophie that he will lift her curse if she breaks his supernatural link with Howl. The action inside the castle is contrasted with the goings-on outside the castle, where Sophie's nation is caught up in a war with a nearby nation, a war seemingly masterminded by the king and his head sor sorceress, Suleiman, voiced by Blythe Danner. When the king summons Howell to his palace, presumably to help use his magic in the war, Howell sends Sophie instead, and this decision sets off a chain of events which will thrust Sophie and her newfound family into the heart of the conflict and force her to confront the realities of her new life and what it feels to have something and someone to lose. Jay, we'll start with you. Does Howl's Moving Castle continue from the masterful spirited away with more strong fantasy storytelling, thematic heft, and world building? Or is it a cluttered mess that highlights its predecessor's precision even more? It's the former, Scott. He, he just does not miss. I mean, you know, we have, we have a couple of movies left to to see if that changes, but another just like, I, I'm starting to understand Scott Shelton. Why I think it was you who was, you know, after I watched Kiki's and I'm like, this is going to end up being my favorite. You were like, hang on a second. Like there's still some really good things coming. And I'm like, you know, like obviously we had spirited away last week and this is just another, like, you know, just amazing inclusion to his filmography. I mean, you know, they're, like you said, there are a lot of fantastical elements in this one, Scott Harvey. I wonder how that sat with you, given some of our earlier conversations. But for me, I thought it worked really well. Like, it, I mean, it did a good job of like blending and also contrasting with the more modern, right? Like, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say this is, you know, a, a film that kind of wants you to be a little bit wary of like modern lifestyle, definitely of war, right? And like modern warfare and, you know, just the, the incorporation of like, the two, I feel like it's just done in a really good way. Like, again, we this is not the first, second, or even third movie, you know, where we've come out of being like, war is bad. But it still felt like a somewhat refreshing way to go about it. Like, you're telling the story through a different medium. We also have, you know, a slight twist on the, the young protagonist, right? We're like, I mean, she, you know, Sophie is young, but we're also seeing her through the lens of, like, being an old person. And I don't know, like something, it, it just, I just, when it was over, I turned to my partner and I'm like, that, like that made me, or my partner actually, that made me feel really good. And I was like, yeah, like, I don't know. It's just like, it was, it was sweet. It was gorgeous. You know, the, the voice performances were phenomenal. You know, we even got a little cameo from Bale's Batman voice, which I thought was a little precursor hilarious. to the Batman. He was, he was, he yeah. was, yes, no, he was cooking. He was testing out the different recipes. I love sure. it. I thought that was, that was so fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like just, just another super solid film. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're going to make the, the final rankings really tough. It's going to be fun. Jay, I, think, your thoughts. I, 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 yeah, I do want to get my thoughts in a second, but Jay, I'm going to wonder is like, is, is Hayao Miyazaki going to be your favorite director of all time at the end of this series? Like, tough questions that you don't need to answer right now, but 
you know, maybe worth asking. Not um, George Lucas? No. Who's the guy who directed episode six? I always forget his name. Oh, uh, Irvin Kirshner did six, I believe. Yeah, just it feels like a total random. Like that's no, no, he did director. he did five. Uh, Richard Marquand. Richard Marquand, that's it. Yes, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But For the second week in a row, we have Star Wars coming up in the middle of the podcast. But it wasn't my fault this time. I don't even remember what it was last time. Did it make the edit last time? I'm not sure. I, I guess know. we'll find out this I weekend because yeah, that episode doesn't, hasn't come out yet. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I, I, this is only the second time I've seen this film. The first time I watched it, I was it was a long time ago. And Jay, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't even talking about this movie when I said there was more good ones to come because I didn't really remember too much about this movie. And it certainly didn't make a, a strong impression on me the first time I watched it. But revisiting it all these years later, I couldn't really help but think as I was watching it, that this is this is like Miyazaki's like Disney princess movie because they, like there's this really grand adventure that's happened. I think this is like first real return to the true, just pure adventure genre in like you could potentially make a case, I guess, for Porco Rosso being an adventure, but it, not in quite the same way, like not a grand adventure like this feels. So, I mean, it feels like this is the first time that he's revisiting it since Castle in the Sky for me. And I think that you really feel that in the pacing and the tempo of the movie. And Obviously, there's lots of twists on it, like this notion of Sophie being a princess in the in the lingo of of comparing it to a Disney a Disney movie. But there's so much more complexity to her as a character than I think you get in a lot of those sort of equivalent comparison films on the Disney on the Disney side. You know, I think your point about war in this film, like to give context, you know, this film was made shortly after the Iraq war had begun in the early 2000s. And when Miyazaki was receiving his Academy Award for Spirited Away, he openly talked about how the Iraq war made him very angry. And he's very openly, I mean, not, not surprising based on other movies, but he's a pacifist. He's someone who's been very vocal about being anti-war, even outside of the film, like the films that he makes. and. I think in many ways, I'll, like you said, other movies that he's made have anti-war themes, but this one is just sort of so unabashedly anti-war in a manner that is, I think it comes off very strong, right? Like Mononoke and Nausicaa are other movies that jump you know, out in my mind right away that, that position themselves as anti-war, but like anti-war in a way that's not... Like he's clearly laying out that it is not productive, but not in a manner that is like this is the like you are causing the end of society in a manner of speaking in such a cynical manner. I think the, the manner in which you have someone like um, the the wizard or I forget what her actual title is, but it was Suleiman, the sorceress, the yeah. sorceress. Yeah, the sorceress Suleiman. It, like the way that the film portrays her as this sort of like mustache twirling, almost villain uh, who is fighting this war for no apparent reason other than the fact that she just wants to and feels like it is so much more cynical than either of the other movies that we've seen, whether it's Nausicaa or Porco Rosso, if you count like the fighting for like the pirate side or princess mononoke where i think you can understand why both sides are going to war or castle in the sky where it's like this person wants to 
wants to retake Laputa. Like you can kind of understand the motivations of a lot of these people who are going to war, even if the film says that that is ultimately very bad. But this one just comes out so strongly against it and portrays it in such a like, I don't want to say caricatured way, because I think Miyazaki is trying to say it feels like people are fighting wars for for cynical reasons. I think that was like literally the point he was trying to make. It was very intentional. Um, so it, it's a very, I don't know if I'd call it, I, I don't know if I'd personally call it refreshing, uh, which I know is not quite the context in which you were using the word. I, I do appreciate that. But it's one of those things where it, I think it, it makes a really strong impression, this this viewing, especially when you factor in thinking about all these other films that he's made, how, how you know, sort of with a bullet, he's really trying to, to make this theme work in the film. Like it's no, there's no bones about how he feels about it. And he takes it to an extreme in this movie. I don't mean that as a negative. I think that in some, in some manners, you could call it maybe derivative or... In, in, a, in a way just because it's so it's so unnuanced if that's the right way to put it but i think when you add the context of why he felt that way maybe you can disagree with with his with his perspective on the iraq war and that may color how you feel about this particular theme and the way it manifests but uh, it's certainly it's i mean i think it's very powerful i think it is really powerful it's like a really powerful element of the film and yeah, it's the setting, I guess, to, to sort of pivot back and zoom back out. Like, I think the setting is really awesome as well. It really reminded me a lot of either some mold of like the beginning of Castle in the Sky and the town where um, Patsu is from or Kiki's Delivery Service, the town there. Like, it has this very European vibe to it that I really like. I think the animation style, this is the first film, in my opinion, where the animation like really evolves. Like, things have been getting, you know, marginally progressively better and better but some of the animation of the castle and the sky although not talking about castle in the sky is really i think is like a, a huge step up in in terms of the visual flow of the animation of the 2d um you know hand-drawn art pieces and i remember like turning the film on when i watched this in the in, you know over the last you know i think what yesterday and i was like sort of like could have caught my breath a little bit when you see the castle just sort of crawling along because there, there's nothing that looks like that in any of his previous movies that we've watched to date so far. And it's not something that I connected the dots on until rewatching it. It's sort of in this sort of conjunction in the way, manner that we're watching it in. So I think it's a huge step of animation. Joe Hisaishi is just unbelievable as always with the score, the voice performances, you know, we can get into having Christian Bale and Emily Mortimer, I think really elevates this with Billy Crystal adding a lot as Calcifer, this sort of like almost like, sidekick like character scott shrugging so he disagrees with that we'll get into that later um but i think this is a big one i think this this might be the movie that has stepped up the most uh, in rewatch which shouldn't surprise me because so many of miyazaki's movies have stepped up um in my estimation on rewatches and this is a, a big winner like whether it shakes out in the top tier of miyazaki i i think the answer is ultimately no for me but the fact that you know this isn't in his top tier but this still feels better than most of everything disney's ever made in animation is like puts things into perspective. Yeah, I mean, when I did my initial run of watching uh, Ghibli movies, this one I watched and I enjoyed, but it came out, I think, on the bottom probably of the ones that I had seen. And after rewatching it, I think it probably still comes out on the bottom. I enjoy the movie. I do. Uh, 
I, I, there are a lot of things I like about it. The moments when the anti-war message comes through, I think are great. Um, I think there are some sort of lovely, more emotional, sensitive moments in there. Um, and there's like a, a love story that feels like it works a little bit better than, you know, the love story. And let's say Castle in the Sky, right? You, you bring it up there. I had some issues with that as much as that is a, a love story. But, you know, I, I don't know that. Miyazaki's certainly, movie. certainly not to the extent that this movie is. I mean, this yeah, movie is yeah. like the first time we've really seen of a, a lot where story. he really goes all the way with it, and maybe yeah. that's that's strong. Uh, that's what makes it stronger here. But um, I do like that element of it, and um, yeah, you know, obviously the animation score, just all of that. I just think, and and I will fully acknowledge this could just be a me problem, but this movie is comes off as very convoluted to me at times, and. There are times when I am ju just watching it, particularly as we get deeper into it, and I'm like, what is happening right now? Again, <laughs> that is possibly a me problem more so than a, than a movie problem, but I feel, felt myself getting lost in the plot on multiple occasions. I think, you know, you have like everything that's going on in the house, right? And, and multiple different characters, and we keep adding to the ensemble, like right, the witch eventually joins, we have the dog joining, you know, we have all of this. We have all of the drama that's going on in there and the bond between Calcifer and Howell and what's going on with that and why is Howell so emo all the time and the, you know, sort of personal drama surrounding that. Um, and then every character having its own little story. And then, you know, again, all of this is happening against the backdrop of the war and everything that's going on there with the king and Suleiman and how getting involved in the war there's just a lot going on and i don't feel like it is about he, he he is able to balance it always as well as he does in let's say you know in spirited away again i think it stands out a little more to me this time because we did just watch spirited away and you could say that there's a lot going on in spirited away too but it just feels like the storytelling is so much more precise in that movie than it is here and there are times when I feel like Miyazaki is just kind of finding his way a little bit uh, along the story in this movie. And um, I, I, there, there are just some, some times when I just kind of like glaze over and, you know, I, I can't look, I, the plot is not always something that mat matters to me, but um, I'm trying to just like lock in on the vibes of the movie and it feels like it becomes something different every, you know, 10 15 minutes or so um and so that is kind of my biggest barrier to entry on this movie um also scott you mentioned it and, and i will say i think billy crystal is kind of distracting in this movie and you know that again that's an english dub problem that's not really a problem with the movie necessarily because you know like you recognize his voice or like what, yeah. what do you mean distracting yeah i think it's distracting because i i don't know he just comes off as a little like I think of the Princess Bride or I think of like, you know, these other movies where he has played like when Harry met Sally, right? He plays like this goofy guy and he, I don't know, he has one of those voices. It just doesn't feel like it fits in this world. I don't, I, I can't put my finger on it exactly, but when I hear the voice, I'm like, oh, it's Billy Crystal. And when I hear other people's voices in the movie, I'm not thinking about, oh, that's Emily Mortimer. Oh, that's such and such. It just takes me out of it a little bit, I guess, is what I'm saying, because he has such a recognizable voice. And, you know, 
obviously you associate him with a lot of famous things. So um, I, I think that's the the problem for me. If I had to point to something, it's not a huge issue with the movie, but you know, there is, that is an important character in a lot of ways. And when I just hear it, hear his voice, I'm like, I hear Billy Crystal doing bits in an Oscar monologue or something, uh, which again, I understand that's partially a me problem, but um, it, you know, I can only offer my own perspective on the movie. So um, sure. those are just some of my issues. Like, again, I don't want to sound like I'm overly negative about it because I still do think it's a good movie. I don't necessarily think you're wrong, Scott, when you say, you know, it's better than a lot of what Disney's produced um, in, you know, this time. Um, but it does stand out to me a little bit in Miyazaki's filmography because the bar is raised so high and it's raised even higher after watching Spirited Away for the first time. I just think he doesn't quite thread the needle for me perfectly. And I do get lost on what's going on and what everyone is trying to do, I guess, uh, because, you know, we understand there's these curses that are trying to be broken, but then that's like the that's like how this the setup of the movie, but then it feels like there's just other stuff going on along the way that branch off from that. And I'm like struggling to connect it to well now, how does this get us back to we're trying to break the curses, right? Um, is is that the core driving thread of the plot though, trying to break the curses? It's I don't think it's ever made apparent whether curse these curses are breakable until Turniphead breaks the curse at the end of the movie. Well, I mean, don't they have the conversation, her and Calcifer, um, when she sort of first arrives at the castle, that, hey, I can help you break the curse if you help me break mine, basically. It's kind of a little deal that they make there. I did feel like that was going to be, like, a little bit more of a central plot driver than I felt like it ended up being. I didn't really mind. Yeah. And, like, I will say, I, I do think it felt a little convoluted, um yeah the plot, I, like I think within yeah. the different you know like first of all he has like different identities and like he's going and coming back and pendragon jenkins going on. um totally. yeah i think part of that's also just the fact that like we expect everyone to have like clearly elaborated motivations and it, i think things become easier to follow when they do but frankly a lot of the people in the war plot don't have motivations i think right, something i'd go back to just what i was saying earlier about i think that's the point is that the sorceress and the king they don't have motivations for fighting this war and calling the wizards um, up to be in the military. Like they're not trying to win anything. And that's, and that's intent, you know, whether that works or not is, is not, is, is for each individual person to decide, but it does feel like that because of that choice, it's like, well, okay, why are they going to fight this war right now? What's going on here? Like I get, I get why that's convoluted because like you want to sort of like rationalize that and understand that. But the point, I think the point is that, there is no rationalizing and understanding. And I said, I think because of that, it makes things more confusing. I think it makes Hal's motivations more confusing. I mean, frankly, I think Hal is like the kind of the issue in the movie for me. If I had like to point to one thing that doesn't fully tie up completely is Hal is a character that I think doesn't always work for me. Um, part of that is because he's not, the main character and so you're not getting like sort of an interiority on his character that I, you're getting on Sophie who I think is a really fully realized nuanced person with a, like a lot of very interesting things I think to discuss about her in a moment but how I would sort of identify Hal as the character who creates friction in the film for me if I were to point to a character because 
he's like extremely vain and very selfish early on. He goes over through this arc where he becomes less of those things, presumably because of he because of this relationship that he's developing with Sophie. And, you know, he becomes someone who doesn't want to run away anymore. They're, they make a lot of that. And he's ultimately someone who wants to defend the people that he's learned to care for, which are Sophie, but also Markle and Calcifer, etc. So I think the journey is a good one, but at times I feel like it's, I didn't quite know how I was supposed to feel about how, and I think because of that, it's like kind of hard to justify maybe some of the ways that Sophie is feeling about him early on. And over time, I think that course corrects properly. But if I had to identify one thing that could have made the film better, I think it would be the characterization of how. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. Like I understand that he's meant to be kind of an ambiguous um, character, but when this love story is part of the movie and, you know, we very much are connected to Sophie and want her to, you know, get what she wants when Howell becomes one of the things that she wants. It's just, I don't know. It doesn't feel quite right. Like I, when, when there's that scene, when she goes to see Solomon at the palace and she said, you know, she's kind of explaining everything and she's basically talking about how using his magic, like, and being very self interested and self absorbed in the way that he uses his magic. And I'm like, I kind of agree. Like the, the howl that we see in, you know, a part of the movie, in a large part of the movie, I think that is kind of how he rolls. Um, and so it is hard to lock in on that character because, um, you know, he's, he's not necessarily likable and he's kind of just moping around a lot. It feels like on the scenes when they're at the castle. Um, so maybe that's, maybe that's a small issue as well for me, but, um, like I was saying, I think just the overall convolution of the movie, even if it does make sense, right? It's to some extent, I get what you're saying about the the war aspect of, well, yeah, a lot of wars are fought over trivial things. And, you know, you have like the king and Solomon or whatever, just basically, you know, talking about being self-interested, just sort of fighting this war because... They it's not even like it's it. it's worse than that it's not even trivial things it's it's like being cynical it's like i want to fight yeah. this war because it's i want to fight i want to do something because yeah exactly yeah. um and that's exactly how it's portrayed at the end when she's like oh i guess this is over now i'm uh this is so stupid i'm just gonna yeah. stop fighting now but there's no reason that that's the i got that, my like, kicks yeah she would be that would that mm -hmm. like nothing has changed in the world and her world right like it doesn't make any sense and there's yeah. no explanation for it and that's like that's yeah. that's the message Right. And those are the parts which do work for me. There's just a lot else going on in the movie. But let's talk about Sophie as a character, um, since yeah. she is our protagonist here. Jay, I think you pointed out, again, something else I like about the movie, which is the contrast. We now have an, you know, an elderly character, which we have, who is, a who is the protagonist. We've not had that in any of the movies, really. In fact, you know, by contrast, we have had children in um in a lot of the movies. And I, I kept thinking back to obviously again, spirited away recently and watching Chihiro. And there is sort of, you know, at least the setup is somewhat similar to the movies, even though they diverge after that to where, Hey, there's this curse that has been placed. And now you have to go to this fantastical world and figure out, you know, how you're going to get out of this situation, break this curse, essentially. Um, that is at least, you know, the the first part of both of the movies and 
I, I, I like what he does with the old age of the character here, but I want to get you guys' thoughts, Jay. Um, you know, what you how do you feel about this character? Um, does she offer something different other than just being old um, than some of the other protagonists that we've seen, particularly recently? I mean, yeah, it, it is different. And like, I, I will use the word refreshing um, for that. Again, not that I've necessarily grown tired of the younger protagonist, but, you know, it is something different in a long line of, you know, very memorable kids. But I also think, you know, by introducing her in this way, or like introducing her as young and then immediately aging her up, you know, we, I feel like there's just a lot of, I mean, these movies all have a lot of kindness towards, you know, the young, the old people who may or may not deserve it. Like, you know, you know, everyone deserves it to some extent. Right. And I feel like, you know, there, there are a lot of really sweet moments in this movie. Some of them revolving around Sophie and some of the, some of them around the witch of the waste that really just make a point of being like getting old is hard, but it's not so bad. Um, and you know, like we can, I, I don't want to say like, you know, treat the elderly nicely, but it kind of like, you know, it, I, I think maybe it's it's even saying like, you know, elderly people can be like nice to themselves. I don't know. Like I, I maybe I don't have like fully formed thoughts on this yet, but I feel like this movie is saying a lot of, you know, things about like getting old and it not necessarily being so bad. Like, I don't even want to say it's like, you know, you're only as old as you feel, but it feels like there is a lot of like kindness towards aging that we get to see through Sophie and the way that she handles it and, and then how she ends up treating the witch of the waste after you know her magic is taken and she ages up immediately. Yeah, we don't we don't get like a real sense of her a, a huge sense of what her life is like before she becomes old. We really just get like the first 20 minutes of the movie. But I think even from that, you can see that it's maybe not like the best life that she is, you know, is living. She is, you know, having to work what seems like a somewhat taxing job. She's, you know, of course the, the early scene is her walking to try and find her sister and basically getting harassed by these soldiers in an alley and Howell having to come and rescue her. Uh, that's not something that really happens when she is older. Um, and so I think there's like a sort of freedom and peace a little bit that comes with her after she, you know, becomes this old woman, which, yes, is portraying old age in a positive light, something that is probably not done in, you know, a whole lot of movies. And I really like that scene where she's sitting outside. I don't even remember exactly who she's with or maybe she I think she might be with Markle or something. And she's just like looking out over the landscape, basically, and just kind of says is talking about how at peace she feels and how, you know, when you get to my age or whatever, you really like appreciate these moments and stuff like that. That is, I, I really, you know, I think that's a lovely moment. And, um, you know, maybe the movie could have even engaged with that a little bit more, but I, I do I do like as well, you know, we introduced the witch in there as well. And she's also an, you know, an elderly character. And um, despite setting her up as being a little bit villainous and, maybe she even does some villainous things towards the end of the movie. You know, she is portrayed with some empathy and compassion. So Scott, your thoughts. Yeah. I think that what you're saying there is a big part of it. It's not, it's not that you're only as old as you feel, but like in spite of these 
negatives that do exist. Like it's very difficult for her to walk as far as she used to. She's like when she's leaving the town after she's originally or initially turned into an older woman, she's experiencing a lot of difficulty with mobility. There are these clear limitations to being older, but to your point, Scott, exactly. I think there is the other side of the coin that Miyazaki is trying to highlight here as it's not all bad. There is this element of freedom. She feels liberated, not only from her job and the way she's being treated by other people in society, but I think she's liberated to feel like she can say what she wants to say and speak her mind. Like there, there's an, a psychological component to aging that doesn't have to necessarily be negative for Sophie. And I think that's like a really big statement because not only are, are, are elderly people not typically portrayed in this way in these kinds of movies or even movies in general, I think in these kind of movies, elderly women are more commonly portrayed as the witch of the waste, right? These sort of like old elderly crones who are evil, who have ill intentions and are trying to steal youthfulness or steal good like beauty from younger, more successful women who are in their prime. And I think this film has turned that around and shown quite a different story uh, in that respect. And so in that way, this film feels extremely refreshing. I would definitely agree with that notion and that it is so um, generous and, and portraying women, uh, aging and older women in a specific manner that we haven't really seen in other places. And then in addition to that, I think exactly what, what Scott was saying that even with the witch in the ways uh, the witch of the waste, She's kind of a villain early on. She joins the the party, so to speak. And even in spite of all the bad things that she continues to do, like one thing that I think is really nice is that there's Sophie, who is this very pure, very altruistic portrayed character. But there's also this other el older woman who has a, a mix of characteristics, who is nuanced, who cast this curse on Sophie earlier on but is viewed in, like Scott was saying, I think a pretty empathetic light. And part of that is how much compassion that you see Sophie show her at the end of the film, even after she's continued to do bad things in spite of how well she's been treated by these people that she's wronged in many ways over, over a long, you know, a longer period of time. And I think that is a big part of sort of the, I mean, the personal ethic of almost all, Miyazaki movies is this compassion. I mean, we talked about it at great length last episode about the notion of compassion and how that played a fact played a role for us in Spirited Away. And I think and here it takes um it, you know, sort of rears its head again in the central character of Sophie being so compassionate and understanding and empathetic toward this person who has wronged her and still tried to put herself in her shoes and and saying that even though she made bad choices along the way, Sophie thinks that she has a big heart because she did the right thing in the end. And that's like an, uh, obviously like a very generous thing for her to do, a very compassionate thing for her to do. And I think it's like, I can't immediately think of a, of a movie that has portrayed old age in this very specific way. I'm sure there are other movies exist out there in this manner, but in the animated space, again, this is like, this does feel like a kid's movie to me um, in the animated kids film space. Like uh, there's nothing like this film that I've seen certainly not in mainstream. And I, I mean, I think that's really awesome. Since we're talking about the topic of age, I do want to ask you guys, you know, what do you think? Cause one of the other dis disorienting moments, disorienting sort of recurring things. In the I movie love this. Is I absolutely Sophie love this. flashing back yes. between being old and being young. 
I love this. What do you guys make? I'll throw it to you, Scott, since you're, you know, you're being demonstrative about enjoying it. Um, what do you, you know, what, what do you make of these moments? Why is it that in these select moments, do you think that Sophie switches back to her younger self? Yeah. I, I don't know if I, if I quite have my finger yet on exactly if there is a logic, there might be, I'm not saying there's not like if there is a logic or moments to her specific presentation in the film, but I just think it's like a really awesome animation choice and the sort of weaving in and out and the, of this curve, like wha- this curse, like waxing and waning at some point. I, I don't, I honestly, I haven't really spent the time to try to figure out exactly what it is and map it through the film. I think it would require another rewatch, try to make sense of that. But I just think it like work. It like really works for me in the course of the film. And I didn't really try to immerse myself in trying to explain when it's working, when it's not, it probably has something to do with the witch of the waste powers waxing and waning, you know, obviously towards the end of the movie is when the curse starts to break more. And that's when her powers have been taken away from her. So, but there's also this element of like the relationship between Sophie and Hal, And I imagine that has something to do with the sort of, you know, age old, maxim of you know true love's first like true love's kiss or whatever will cure you of your curse and there's some element of the like i'm sure there's like lots of different or maybe the explanation is really simple i don't don't really haven't put a ton of thought to it but i really think that it's a it's a choice that really works for me in the animation style and in the plotting of the movie and i i really liked it i enjoyed it jay any thoughts on this yeah i was i wasn't thinking that hard about it but the moment that I think it was, it seemed the most like her, her flashing to her younger self felt the most dramatic, like the, the first really dramatic occurrence of it. Um, and like, again, I might've just like missed one earlier, but like to me, it felt like when they're in the new castle and she's being shown her new setup and, you know, how it's just like, this is for you. And, you know, it's clear like she, you know, recognizes it and is feeling like, so at home, like, I don't know. I like, my like, you know, very quick, very reductive read on it was like, it's when she feels pretty, you know, that she like kind of goes back to actually like being, you know, like youthful and like by extension, like I guess pretty, right? Um, I, I'm, I, you know, I don't know if that like actually would hold up. Like if you put a gun to my head and asked me like, what do you think it was? Like, that's my guess, but I don't, I don't know if that holds up. We like, that might be disproven like 20 minutes into the movie, right? It might just, it might have more to do with just like what is happening with the witch of the waste and powers. And it could be a little more just like, you know, maybe even like a little bit intentionally random. I don't know, but um, it definitely feels like it has something to do with her, like emotional state, whether it's because yeah. she feels pretty or whether she's feeling more like a very productive or, way of describing. Or, it. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I think love maybe if we want to try and associate some sort of logic with it, I think maybe, you know, and I, I can't remember every single time that it happens, obviously, but because perhaps, it happens so often. So, yeah, yeah, perhaps there are it, it's moments when she is feeling something approaching love. Right. Because I think, you know, the movie would perhaps suggest in the end that breaking the curse is that that love is is the, you know, sort of the, the secret sauce to breaking the curse in the end. Um, I was thinking of of the two of you as this was happening. Uh, and a different movie that I really, really like 
starring Christian Bale, where there's two versions of the same person on screen and wondering <laughs> why and if, you know, one is on screen for I a I thought you were going to say another. <laughs> another movie where love is the answer. Which, oh, well, uh, I mean, we've seen a bunch of those, but this felt <laughs> even true, more, more specific. Obviously, not the same as the prestige. Yeah, I thought it was really crazy that the social network's endearing message at the end was that love is the answer. It's kind of <laughs> crazy that they did that. And, for, and the Phantom Menace, you know, that's... In that's this what countdown, the, plus one in the Nolan countdown. But yes. that's what the purple orb represents at the end of the Phantom Menace that they're they're bringing to them in the celebratory parade at the mm -hmm. end. It, mm -hmm. It's love. That was that's what that really is. Yeah, and I'm I can't wait to do, got do to a Jurassic Park countdown where life and love find a way. You know, for the record, that's the second uh, yeah, Star gonna, Wars reference that I did not make. I'm gonna be sick after the first week of the Jurassic Park. Uh, countdown i'm just going to go ahead and tell you guys that but um but the first week will be awesome um all right let's talk so scott you brought up the character of howl and obviously sure. his name's right there in the title he you know if not being the main character is sort of uh, this figure that um so much of the plot and you know so much of the movie revolves around uh, it is his castle and he is sort of this mythic figure that is talked about even in the beginning of the movie like by um sophie's sister what do you make of this character and his motivations what's driving him um you know sophie and him have this romance do you see growth in this character as the movie goes on Scott, oh yeah absolutely yeah i know i think this character exhibits huge growth over the course of the film i'm I think it's it, Hal is one of these weird things where because his name's in the title of the film, I think you, there's this inclination to think that he is like he's a good guy, right? like he's one of the good guys in the film. But I, I don't think that he is at the beginning of the movie. I think that the film sort of sneaks its way to sort of portraying him as this very aloof figure who doesn't have many, if anyone else's interests in mind. And it's really the sort of position that Sophie inserts herself into that begins to make him appreciate not just Sophie I think but also Markle and Calcifer in a different way because obviously he appreciates Calcifer in the sense that Calcifer literally makes makes everything work in the castle but it's it's a very interesting and and very negative place that I think that character starts in and I think that that's where the friction that I was talking about earlier exists where because he starts his upward trajectory of character growth and it like Sophie's feelings. And maybe this is also me like misreading the beginning of the film, because this is something that I want to think more about and think more about, especially when I rewatch it. But is Sophie like, is Sophie experiencing love for Hal at the beginning of the movie or is her motivation to like try to get her curse removed? Like, obviously she's smitten by the notion of this like very powerful wizard who makes his way through the world like all of the women at the beginning of the movie are talking you know talking about how like how much fear and respect that they have for this person who like steals girl like women's souls and like our hearts and eats them or whatever right like there's this fear and this respect and awe of what he's capable of and i think that th maybe this is on me like i almost feel at the beginning of the movie i was ex like i sort of read this notion of like she's falling in love with him very quickly and i wonder if that's actually not the case in the film and instead she's just trying to find, like create a new identity for herself as a 90 year old person who is 
she's not even trying to integrate herself back into society because she was what 20 or whatever 20 something now she's 90 she's older than her friends and her family like she's eight years and years like decades older than her mother now and so she's choosing to enter this world of a, a, a wizard a magician like how because it's a it's a restart it's a refresh and how as a at like adjacent to that is like someone who is like not a very good person at the start of the movie and i think you start that upward trajectory you see sophie start to fall in love with him which is i think is maybe going back to what jay and you were discussing earlier i think was maybe when you start to see her sort of almost like bounce back and forth between young and old i think that's i think that might be a part of it as i work through my own thoughts here live on the podcast for everyone and by the end obviously hal's hal's um a completely different person at the end of the movie i think he goes on a huge transformation over the course of this film he's totally convinced um by the love and and compassion that sophie is putting into the castle into the house into markle into these things that she's touching and I think that inspires him in a way that certainly drives their love for each other forward, but also his growth from being someone who is very self-absorbed and and selfish and vain and and becomes this person who defends the things that he cares about, like he de defends the castle, defends Sophie, defends Markle. And it's a huge, it's a huge trajectory. Now, whether you believe all those all those things happen in a smooth man, the smoothest, as smooth a manner as I described them happening just now, I think is a reasonable question. But I think that almost sort of misconception that I was having at the beginning of the movie drives a lot of that friction I was talking about. And I wonder if, if a lot of other people experience that same friction, because I, I almost wonder if we're reading some of those things onto his character earlier than we should be. A lot to unpack there. I mean, to state the obvious, just to start, like how obviously does go through a lot of change, right? I mean, like, you know, we see him like turn into this, like, like, I, I forget exactly what is happening to him when he's basically like oozing green stuff. You know, I'm not, I'm not beautiful. There's no reason to live anymore. Like that guy becomes the guy who like doesn't want to run away anymore. And is like, you know, going like, again, like redesigning his castle for Sophie and, you know, eventually like, you know, putting his life on the line for her. Like a lot does happen there. I don't, I don't, think like i think i agree with scott that or at least where i think you were ending up which is i don't think at the beginning of her time in the moving castle even though she like clearly was smitten with him from their first encounter i think she is more just trying to like carve out her place here she's certainly charmed by him but i don't get the the more that i think back on it the more i feel like the the love angle isn't it, it's it maybe it's there early but it's not there at the at the beginning yeah i think that's fair and i think you know, I mean, we, 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 I think at least one or two of us have talked about, you know, liking the romantic aspect of this one. And I like that it doesn't really start off that way. And it does feel to me more like, you know, she is again just trying to like make her way now that she's like gone through she's this like thing through this. and is adjusting to it like very, very well. I think that like I, you know, how's growth like does work for me. Sophie like eventually getting there in terms of like falling for him, like I think is done. Well, again, you know, I think the word true, the words true love were thrown out like once at some point, and I like rolled my eyes in my usual, like, aha, you know, like there's your like US English edit again. Uh, but I, I think more, more than some, if not most, you know, it, it feels like it's, it's built up in an entertaining way, you know, not like super just like, oh, it's clearly love the way like, you know, you would have in like a Disney princess story, but 
you know, a, a little more like, you know, you, 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 the, the care for like the care that they have for each other, like seems to grow over the course of the film and like what feels like a more natural way as how also just like becomes, you know, a, a easier person to root for. It is, you know, maybe a little unnerving that his name is in the title. I mean, you know, should we have called this the curious case of Sophie Hatter? Anyway, I don't have too much to add about uh, how I do think, you know, um, you, there's definitely some some growth and development there. I talked earlier about him being self-absorbed, but just like the small gestures of, oh, he, you know, has a room, creates a room for um, Sophie and he wants her to, you know, run this flower shop and basically is showing uh, care and attention towards the things that Sophie is interested in and that makes her, make her happy. And, um, you know, it, it may, it's maybe a little bit simplistic, but like, it's obvious, it, it's an obvious way of showing that he cares about her and that he is willing to become a different person, a better person so that he can, you know, be with her. Um, other thoughts so not necessarily, on I mean sorry just to not even to like really be with her because I, I think in his mind while he's doing this stuff he doesn't think he's going to be around all that much longer right I mean like they even have true, that conversation yeah. where she's like tell me the truth like it you know it feels like you're like leaving and in his mind you know he's probably like yeah like I'm going to die or become this like you know bird creature um but like by quote unquote by the end of the movie right or like in the next however much time so I think right it's even more selfless than that. Like he's not really doing it so he can like be with her. He's like, Hey, I'm not going to be here, but I want you to be like set up and like have a nice life afterwards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's showing her love in a, in a different way, I guess, than just, you know, I want to be with you forever. But um, to talk about the other characters in the movie, because, you know, there are others. We talked about the, the witch a little bit. Um, anything you guys want to say about like Markle, um, Calcifer, we have Turniped, who probably the funniest part of the movie, it's not a very funny movie in general, but possibly the funniest part of the movie is the twist ending involving Turniped <laughs> when he just transforms into the prince from the nearby town and is like, oh yeah, I'm the prince that's been missing, by the way, for this whole time from the nearby town a uh, pretty funny uh just random moment that happens at the end of the movie and then also he like it seems like he's he kind of like in love with sophie too and like just basically gets gets cucked in the end by howl but <laughs> but as with time hearts change so he'll be back yeah he's like okay i'm i'm gone i'm just gonna go like end the war now now that I'm back to being a, a normal guy. Uh, anything, anyway, anything you guys want to add about, you know, sort of the, the supporting characters here, the people who are sort of adding color to the ensemble. I mean, I actually really liked Calcifer and, you know, I, I didn't find the voice like distracting really, even though I felt like I recognized it as well. And even though it maybe felt like, a little bit out of place just for like the general vibe of the movie this is also like a flame demon like it like given i don't i guess like he is the most different from everyone else in the house right like everyone else there is humanoid i think um i'm forgetting uh, i wouldn't describe the, the house the as dog. humanoid but yes i said everyone else in the house yeah um, keen the dog yes other than the dog um 
which another case of, you know, uh, pet from the uh, evil old woman ends up tagging along with the protagonist uh, that we saw last week. But yeah, I thought, I thought, you know, Cal- because Calcifer is like, you know, the only like, you know, it's like non-humanoid in the house other than the dog. Like it, it felt like, you know, the, the voice being a little different, like kind of worked for me. Um, and then yes, Turnip Head was just like, a really endearing character you know I, I really like enjoyed his inclusion how he kept coming back and being helpful and then the the end was just such an odd twist but like again did work you know it was cute like I actually I think I kind of like the you know hearts change and I'll be back kind of vibe like more so than like the you know I'll never forget you kind of thing like it was just a little more like I don't know optimistic and not as like dire about Sure. not being chosen like that was a nice you know I, I look think he's he still a prince weird. he'll be fine yeah exactly like you know he'll, he'll be all right either way yeah bill oh go ahead. no go ahead i was gonna say no i'm a fan of calcifer as well i will say it reminded me a lot of just sort of like insert random non-humanoid sidekick in an animated movie like the, it, it sort of filled a role in that sense, this sort of very charming, endearing role. Like, I mean, frankly, I thought a lot about Elemental with this character because I mean, he's like literally a, like a fire spirit, flame demon type thing. So the Pixar film Elemental, I was like, oh, this feels familiar because, uh, you know, half of the main characters in those films are in that film are fired like flame spirits of some sort. And I, yeah, I found it charming. I think that there was a, um, an element of comic relief that the film benefited from both with that character and the sort of almost physical gag, the visual gag of turnip head. He sort of played a role in that vein. And yeah, I just found it charming. The voice is, I, I do understand what, just like both of you have said that it can be, it, it sounds different than everyone else in the movie, but I think most people are going to find Christian Bale like way more distracting of a voice in this movie than Billy Crystal, at least our age. But uh, people of, you know, a different generation are are probably going to find Billy Crystal very uh, recognizable. But I don't know. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it because like I as soon as Emily Mortimer started talking, I'm like, Emily Mortimer, eh? It's That's you from the newsroom. <laughs> but I mean, we're joking about that. But like I locked in yeah. immediately on that. And you know, eventually it, it sort of melts away and also ship, you know, that voice doesn't isn't appearing throughout the whole, whole film because Gene Simons does take over for a quite a stretch of time. But no, I, I, I liked the ensemble voice cast. Uh, Heen, we probably haven't talked about Heen enough, which is the dog. Suleiman's pet uh, liked him. He was a good boy. And so what, what's the deal with him, by the way? He can't bark. Does he have some curse on him, too? Is that the deal? What do we think? I think everybody has some curse on them in one way or the other. <laughs> Everyone yeah. in this family has stuff going on, right? He like, wheezes. Yeah. He just wheezes. Line. He can't bark, the poor guy. He's just trying to get everyone's attention, and he's wheezing. He's like... <laughs> Very funny. Yeah. yeah. Add something different, I guess. Uh, I will put some respect in the name of Mark Holt because I, I enjoy him. I think he's, Peter. he's cute. Uh, yeah, and he adds some fun, youthful energy to the movie. I didn't find him annoying. Like You didn't you find know, him precocious when he's like crying and begging Sophie not to leave? He's a kid. Yeah. I, I didn't. I, if anything, it was like the beginning a little bit when he's kind of like a little more assertive and a little more like, 
bossy, I guess, that yeah. I was I rolled my eyes slightly, but once he settles in, I found him very charming. Would adopt him one hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> wow. All right then. <laughs> um big statement made. But Scott's ready uh, for yeah. fatherhood. Put some respect on his name. Yeah, look, we were bring talking it, about bring hunger. it on. We were talking about Hunger Games. Okay, good, glad to hear it for you. Uh, <laughs> talking about Hunger Games before we started recording, and and obviously he might have peaked as a kid. Uh, I don't want to be too harsh on the guy, but uh... well, look, have you seen Five Nights at Freddy's, Scott? Because he's back, baby. Oh, I Josh Hutcherson is back. He's the lead no, of the movie. No, I have. <laughs> he's he's the lead actor in the movie. Well, shows you how much I care about that movie, then I guess. But uh, well, you're but you're I missing think. out what people care about our age because I'm I'm missing about what people care about. I'm not sure I'm missing out on a piece of cinema, but um, you know what? If that's your your thing, enjoy it. Sure. Um, Can't I'm say I watched it myself either, but it it popped off. All right, um, let's talk about. You know, we've talked about some of the the thematic ideas in the movie, particularly, you know, what the movie has to say about age, what the movie has to say about compassion, kindness, empathy, all these sorts of things. We obviously alluded up front to the commentary on the war, and I think we maybe, you know, got a little bit to the core of that. But I do just want to touch on that, you know, one more time here before we wrap up, because I do think that um, it is the overarching idea above everything else and and scott mentioned that the movie was you know designed in the shadow of the iraq war and miyazaki had that on his mind when he was crafting this um you know jay i'll I'll throw it to you because maybe you haven't quite weighed in as much on this aspect of the movie but um do you think that the the statement that he's making on war comes across clearly and is it different from what we've seen in other movies where he, he you know has a pacifistic stance as well i mean i think as scott shelton pointed out like it feels a little more i don't want to say like on the nose but just like obvious um to me that you know the we he's already elaborated uh quite a bit on you know the the futility or like the you know the, the lack of real motive behind war other than just like for kicks you know another thing that stands out to me in addition to that is the you know, I think there's a line that's like, you know, by the end of this war, they won't remember that they're human. Um, and, you know, that doesn't have to just be like, you know, oh, they've like taken this magic and they're like doing this thing. Like there's a very like, not deprives, but like removes us of our humanity to an extent, right? Like we're... Totally. It's an absolute commentary on the experience that soldiers have when they are sent to war. I mean, the whole thing with the, like the Wizards Must Report is like, it's it's the military draft. You're They're sending you out to fight the war and you come back and you're totally different than when you left. Yeah, like it's, it's you know, and I, I think in that sense, it's different, right? Like I think earlier films, I think about like Nasca and Mononoke, you know, maybe make it more as like a, we don't want to destroy ourselves. We could be destroying ourselves with this. And this is more just like, you know, I think just Eve, like bleak isn't even the right word, but it's... It's cynical. I think it's just, like I, I think he's taking a very strong, yeah, yeah, yeah. cynical stance. Every, everything about this war just feels so flippant, I Pointless. guess. Like, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, we don't know who's fighting, really. We don't know what they're fighting for. You know, yeah, they weren't they weren't really naming places like they kept using phrases like the enemy. And I was just sitting there thinking fifth generation top, top fighters. Members. Yep, exactly. <laughs> They've got MIGs <laughs> the whole uh, time. And, uh, you know, you but have it's worse Powell. than that, though, because the, obviously with Top Gun, it's like the, the point of that is not that you're fighting a, a nameless or faceless enemy. 
the point of that is that like you know our our sanctitude is like under threat right like if we don't stop this this is a threat to our society but in this movie it's fifth generation fighters in this movie (laughs) there's no apparent threat no at all which i'd imagine was miyazaki's perspective on the invasion of iraq sure and yeah as as you mentioned it all just sort of wraps up so abruptly it's like as soon as these people want to end the war they can end it right it's not you know there's nothing holding them back because it was all just sort of this engineered thing um so absolutely very cynical in yes what you guys have i think correctly said is an otherwise sort of warm comforting movie at times about this sort of found family coming together um you know there there is this other aspect to it that um is obviously so crucial to Miyazaki's ethos. I mean, again, we saw it, we've seen it in so many movies before this, you know, him throwing in anti-war commentary. And I, obviously, obviously the Iraq war, you know, being a major world war, um, I'm sure uh, only put that more into perspective for him when he uh, made this movie, which this is adapted from a fantasy novel. So Miyazaki working with an adaptation again, like he has in uh, a couple of the movies that we've talked about, but um, not not totally sure on you know how direct of an adaptation it is. It, it's um, yeah, they he definitely changes some some things. Right. I mean, I think that is kind of the thing, right? So is this the first? Because I'm it, my memory is failing me right now. Is this the first time he's adapted something that's not been of Japanese origin? Because I think that. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that is actually a, a, a big deal mainly because he takes a lot of creative Liberty with this. Not that he's changing like huge swaths of the story, but I do think that he makes major changes between the two. And I don't think that he's someone who cares whether or not he's making huge adjustments. And I think this kind of comes up when he was adapting Kiki's as well, which we didn't really talk about too much, but he did make some adjustments from the book or series of books that he was adapting into the film that the author didn't necessarily approve of, but not in like a, I don't want you to do this, but just like did not ask whether she was okay with him doing it. And he just did it because it's, what he wanted to do and he because has like he's a, Miyazaki and well, that's the thing like he he creates yeah. very strong creative authorial I mean th- we'll talk about this with the boy and the heron but I don't think it's a spoiler to say like that is an adapted work but is not really adapting yeah. the material that the book has in it he's never going to do anything uh, I don't think that doesn't feel like it's fully his own whether Except it is or not loop in the third <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. I, I guess that's fair but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah even that I think you can see the sure this style but um okay guys uh, unless there's anything else you guys want to add about this movie um i think it's probably time to move into the wrap-up phase for howl's moving castle favorite scene or moment jay habib it was a tough one i this is one that i didn't it hit me more so after i'd finished watching the movie but it's I think early on when Sophie is, when she's like, you know, making her way out of the city and she, you know, like, like, like uh, one of you described earlier, you know, she's like having trouble like moving and, you know, struggling to like make her way. But at some point, you know, after that, she takes a seat 
she's just looking out and she says to herself, you know, this isn't so bad now, is it? You're still in good shape and your clothes finally suit you. And like when that happened, I was just like, you are handling this like way too well. Um, but by the end of the movie, I was like, and well done to you. Yeah. Um, that's, that's just a line that, you know, stuck really stuck with me once, uh, once we'd finished. Scott. Yeah. I'm going to choose something in the animation department because I just feel like I want to highlight how I, I felt like the animation really evolved and, and grew in this, in this film. And the castle for me is the way in which the film exhibits this the most. So I think one of my favorite film scenes is towards the end of the film when the witch of the waste has tried to take Hal's heart from Calcifer and the whole object, like the mishmash castle of all these different component parts starts to fall apart and it just sort of comes undone and things fall off and it keeps moving. And at one point it loses to like its back legs. And so it just starts like hopping on its front legs. And I think there's like a real creativity uh, in addition to the advancements in animation and the technique of the digital object, like creating digital objects with the 2d animation style that he's really playing with for the first time. And I think that's like one of the real highlights of it, of improvement in the film as we chart the trajectory of his filmography. So it's a film that I visually really enjoyed a scene that I visually enjoyed in the film. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've highlighted a couple of my favorite moments throughout. So I just want to mention, and this is something that we haven't brought up in many, if any of the movies, but is true in a lot of them. There's food in this movie and the food looks spectacular. Um, what those eggs I, trying to get these eggs, the and bacon. bacon and eggs. Yes. That's what I was going to call out specifically uh, delicious looking breakfast. You know, obviously the animation looks gorgeous in all aspects, um, like like Scott has highlighted. But um, I think uh, the I don't know Studio Ghibli food just it it looks like you know it looks like the food on the package or on a commercial or something where it looks so much better than the real food actually is when you buy it. You know, that's what I, that's how I feel about Studio Ghibli food and like seeing this this uh scene just made me want to go eat bacon and eggs so there you go not a super substantive moment but again i did highlight some other moments along the way and i do think we have to re put some respect on miyazaki as an elite food director because as someone who enjoys food i do um you know i i do like movies that uh put the respect on on food as an art form so i think he definitely does that all right, let's put a score on uh, Howl's Moving Castle, Jay. Excellent movie. We're we're wrapping up the countdown. We're you know we're getting to the wrap up stage of it, uh, and I'm feeling good. This was a nine point two. Whoa, Scott! Smoke. Uh, eight point four. Wow. Seven point seven point four for me. I am a little bit lower. Uh, just again because uh, of some of the the convoluted confusion stuff that I think happens throughout, but. It's a it's a really fun movie, and um, I definitely recommend it. As I do all Miyazaki movies, I I wouldn't say that the man misses, even if this is my you know least favorite of the ones we've seen so far. All right, guys. Well, that should just about do it for this episode of the Miyazaki Countdown. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, and 
you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods, a bunch of tiers over there. Even if you can't support us, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And of course, check out our other podcasts. I'm like, it's got right here in the same feed, new movie reviews every single week. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we'll, we will be reviewing another fantasy adventure from Miyazaki. It's this time it's the 2008 film Ponyo. But until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.